You know, the tradition of reading God's Word in the church goes all the way back to the apostles. They had a great uh, habit of quoting Scripture whenever they preached. And then the church took this habit up whenever they were in worship that God's Word would be read. The Bible tells us that faith comes from hearing, hearing the Word of God. So there's something very useful and efficacious for us to hear God's Word spoken. And, uh, of course, we read it regularly, hopefully uh, privately as you do, but we want to read it uh, not together. I'm just going to read this, but you follow along as I read, and we'll join that Christian community over the last 2,000 years that's been reading God's Word together. Psalm 91, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked." Because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its uh, supernatural power. We pray that we would experience it today and that our hearts would be changed as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This message today is special to me because uh, last weekend, Megan and I uh, had this beautiful opportunity to go back to Las Vegas, Nevada, actually North Las Vegas, Nevada, where, and it's Nevada, not Nevada, by the way, so just, just notate that. But we had this beautiful opportunity to go back to the place that we met on a church planning team in Las Vegas, and uh, I was invited uh, to preach at the church. And, and, and I, I kid you not, uh, the guy that that uh, is now the lead pastor of the church, I met sitting in his living room in Taylorsville, Kentucky, and he said, if you, uh, uh, if you move to Las Vegas with me to help uh, be on this church planning team, you're going you're gonna to meet this girl named Megan, and you're going to marry her. And uh, I was like, whatever, bro. No way. There's no way it's going to happen. But just to make sure he wasn't a prophet, <laughs> I flew out to Vegas with him anyway, and we all know how that story ends. <laughs> I trust basically everything he says now. So, uh, so anyway, I uh, got to go there, and uh, their church is a sister church of ours. It's part of the Acts 29 network, as we are. And, and um, you know, it's crazy. The beauty of disciple-making is this, is that you can look out at a room of a 1,000 people, which is about the size of their church now, and know about 20 people and say, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. Because that's what happens when your church is committed to making disciples of Jesus who live in community and on mission. And it's the very same thing that this church is committed to. So how cool would it be to look, look down the road 10 years from now and for people to come and to be a part of a church that you invested your life into? You may or may not be here anymore. But to be able to say, man, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for those people who were committed to making disciples of Jesus. 
The psalm that I chose to preach to them and also preach to you this morning is Psalm 91. And the reason is, is because it's filled with so many promises of God. And, and the, the thing about that church in Las Vegas is this, is that it would have disappeared off of the face of the planet had it not been for the promises of God that they clung to. They, I'm not going to go into all the details, but they had uh, some awful leadership failings. And now, my friend Ty was not the, the lead pastor initially. In fact, he is a... He, he, people ask him where he got his degree from and stuff like that, and he goes, Spencer County High School in Taylorsville, Kentucky. That's the only education he has. But God uses, God uses the, the shameful things of this world uh, to, to shame the wise. Uh, he uses, he uses uh, 1 Corinthians 1 talks about this idea that the Gospel is foolishness to the world. And I love what God is doing there because it's absolutely this work of God. I love what Eugene Peterson says in his, uh, his work, Run with the Horses. He says this, There is no living the life of faith, whether by prophet or person, without some kind of sustaining vision. At some deep level, we need to be convinced, and in some way or other, we need periodic reminders that no words are mere words. Just like what Joe said a few minutes ago. In particular, God's words are not mere words. They are promises that lead to fulfillments. God performs what He announces. God does what He says. Imagine a church that wasn't driven by personality or worship music or anything else but the Word of God. That's what we're after here at New City. And that's, that's, why, uh, that's why we're going into Psalm 91 today. So here's the big idea of where we're going to be going today. It's this, and I'll, I'll have you say it with me afterwards just to kind of help grasp it. It's this, the promises of God belong to Jesus. And because I belong to Jesus, those promises are mine. Would you say that with me? The promises of God belong to Jesus. And because I belong to Jesus, those promises are mine. Okay, so let's dig in here. If you've got a Bible, flip over to Matthew chapter 4. Not, not Psalm 91 just yet, but Matthew chapter 4. Here's the first thing I want to look at this morning. The sweet seduction of empty promises and half-truths. So, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. The reason that I want to look at Matthew 4 first is because the first teacher that I ever had of Psalm 91 was not Psalm 91 itself. It was the devil when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness as Jesus was fasting. It's really interesting. And here's what you need to know about the devil he loves to confuse us with empty promises and half truths, and he loves to use God's word to do that in our lives. He does it all of the time because he knows the word, church, better than we do. But here's the thing that I want you to remember. He is not known by the word like we are. In fact, Matthew chapter 3, just, just a, a page back from Matthew 4 there, Jesus has this experience with his, with, his, with his heavenly Father. John the baptizer is baptizing this baptism of repentance there in the Jordan River in Israel. And, and Jesus comes up to be obedient. He's baptized as well at but Jesus' baptism is a little bit different than everyone else's. In Jesus' baptism, this, this, uh, it says the Spirit descended upon Him like a dove, and this loud, booming voice comes from heaven. And you know what it says? This is My beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is My beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So just after this, the first thing that Jesus does in His ministry is He goes out to the wilderness to be tempted. 
That's his first ministry assignment from his father. In fact, the scriptures say in Matthew 4.1 that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. So let's just pause right there. Why do you think that Jesus' first ministry assignment was to be tempted by the devil? Because that's where our lives began in the garden, isn't it? Jesus came to undo the things that had happened to us in the garden. The temptation by the serpent to Adam and Eve. And so let's, well, I'll, I'll track through this Matthew 4 1 through 7. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was, he was hungry. And the, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the Scriptures go on to say this, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, the same question, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and here's Psalm 91, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, what the enemy was tempting Jesus to believe, wanting him to question, was whether or not his father really loved him. In fact, this is where all of these questions that he asked goes. You know, you notice how he twists the word of God to make Jesus question that very reality in his own heart. Let's see if his love really is what it is, because you're in the wilderness. The Spirit of God has led you out here. You're suffering. You're hungry. You're weak. You're tired. You're isolated. Let's see if your Father really loves you. Here's the thing is that many of us in this room can relate to the conditions maybe that Jesus was in. Feeling like you're almost directly tempted by the devil on a daily basis. And, and the devil isn't omniscient, so he doesn't really... I mean, most of us will never be tempted by the devil. We'll be tempted by the influences of the devil. But Jesus faces him Right there. And he withstands by, by holding fast to the Word of God through the lies that the enemy tempts him to believe. So our confidence in Psalm 91 is this. It's in the One who secures the promises. And what we see Jesus doing is going to exactly the same places that we've been, being tempted and securing the promises on our behalf. Because those promises, when we look at Psalm 91, they're, they're of no use unless they're our promises. And that's the question that we ask ourselves. Is Psalm 91, are these promises that God is a fortress that we can hide ourselves in Him, that we'll tread on the, the, the serpent, that we'll tread on the lion, that we'll tread on the enemy? The only way that's possible is if we have one on our behalf who becomes a promise keeper to secure those promises for us. Now the way that Jesus does this, Hebrews 4 tells us, so flip over to there real quick, and I promise we'll get to Psalm 91 after I finish my first sermon. I didn't get to preach here last week, so there's got to be two sermons here. So the thing that Jesus, that the writer of Hebrews identifies Jesus with is as the suffering servant. The one who's tempted, the one who suffers, and he suffers for a purpose so that God will be ours and the promises of God can come to fruition in our own lives. Here's what. Here's what the scriptures say in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. 
They say this, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, He's, he's come from heaven to earth. He was sent on our behalf. He said, because of that, let us hold fast our confession. Let us cling to the promises of God. Even when we can't see it. For we have a high priest, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And this church is what the the enemy wanted Jesus to give up. He wanted Him to give up the human side of His life. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man. He wanted Him to test God and therefore tap more fully into the divinity than the humanity. But if Jesus were to tap more fully into the divinity than the humanity, then there's no hope for humanity. You see the issue there. And it would have been so easy for Jesus to pull the God card as Philippians 2 reminds us that that, that Jesus didn't, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It would have been convenient in the wilderness. You know when else it would have been convenient? On the cross, right? It would have been convenient to say, hold up, hold up. I'm God. Let me just show you I'm God. I don't need to do this. But He didn't do that. He had to suffer so that the promises of God could become the promises of our lives. Hebrews 4 goes on to say, but one who in every respect, every respect, not some respect, Not many respects, but every respect has been tempted as we are. Think about that. Whatever temptation you face this morning, whatever temptation you're facing right now, whatever temptation you face this week, Jesus has been tempted more. Jesus has been tempted more. But yet He remained without sin. Because of this, because Jesus was fully human, And he resisted the enemy's temptation. He faced him. And he clung to the promises of God. Because of this church, here's what you and I get to do. With confidence, we get to draw near to the throne of grace. We get to tap into His divinity. His his righteousness is propitiated to us. It belongs to us. We belong to God because Jesus suffered and He resisted the enemy that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. I remember sitting in a seminary class years ago and someone was trying to convince our class, because in in seminary you kind of debate back and forth on interpretations of Scriptures and stuff, but someone in our class was trying to talk about Hebrews uh, 2 and Hebrews chapter 4, and he he was trying to say that, you know, Jesus wasn't really tempted like we are. It wasn't really the same because He was fully God. I mean, he could just tap into that at any moment. I remember getting so infuriated on the inside that I, st- I literally stood up in the class and I said, if Jesus wasn't tempted as we're tempted, then I'm out of this whole thing because there's no hope for us. It was a little bit awkward in class <laughs> for that moment. But, but the thing is, is that we need to cling to that Word wholeheartedly. Because without it, the promises of God do not belong to us. If Jesus did not identify with us, fully as humanity, those promises that belong to His divinity are not ours. Because we believe in what He's done by faith, we fully are received as sons and daughters. And you know, the beautiful thing about that is, is that that promise that that God the Father blesses Jesus with when He's baptized, this is My Son in whom I'm well pleased. That 
echo becomes our story in Jesus Christ. Now, Neil, you're His Son in whom He's well pleased. Megan, you're His daughter in whom He's well pleased. That is our story now through faith. And the enemy wants to do everything in his power to keep you from clinging to the love of God through faith. To keep you thinking about the laundry list of things that disqualify you from the race. To keep you considering all of the things that haunt your past. To keep you focused on what is right before you, but not the author and perfecter of your faith. And every time that he does that, we miss out on those promises of God. So today what I want us to do is look at Psalm chapter 91 through the promises of God. Because it is that suffering, it is that heartache, it is that trial that we experience that disciplines us and drives us to Jesus Christ. If we could get there on our own, we would, wouldn't we? We would do everything in our power to get to eternity, to get to the well-pleasing uh, favor of God on our own. But it's only through faith that we get there. That's why it doesn't matter what you've done in this room. If you'll turn to Him in faith and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Scriptures say, you will be saved. And that's how Psalm 91 belongs to us, church. So let's flip over uh, to Psalm chapter 91. And here's what we're going to do as we look at four, just four themes that we see in Psalm 91. Is that we're going to learn to cling to the promises of God through the promise keeper Jesus. And, and the, the reason that we can believe and stand on these promises is because of what 1 Corinthians 1 says. It says this, for all of the promises of God find their yes in Him. If you've got a Bible, you need to highlight all in there because it's not some, it's not a few, it's not occasionally, but all of the promises of God find their yes in who? In Jesus. Why? Because He suffered on our behalf. And He rose from the dead. And now we have life in His name. And so we can count those words as Eugene Peterson said. We can take them to the bank because Jesus has secured them for us. So this psalm, what we see uh, first is this, is that it begins in the first person. We don't really know who wrote this. Some people say Moses wrote it because Psalm 90 was written by Moses. Some people think that David wrote it because the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, um, of the Old Testament, the LXX, if you're a Bible nerd, um, was, ascribes it to David. But we, really, we don't know. And the beauty is, it doesn't matter. Uh, but what we do know is that it points to Christ as the promise keeper on our behalf. So as, as we look at Psalm 91, 1 and 2, here's what I see the theme being for us. That we can run to God instead of running from God in trouble. Let me say it again. We can run to God instead of run, running from God in trouble. Listen to what Psalm 91, 1 and 2 says. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Here's what this promise means for you and I. If we hide ourselves in God, if we run to Him in trouble, and by the way, it's not a matter of if you find yourself in trouble, but when you find yourself in trouble. If we will run to Him, He will cover us. That's the promise. Now, now the, the problem for us is, is that we rarely run to God in trouble. In fact, 
will do everything but run to God in trouble. Think about in the, in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they, they take that temptation that we've talked about. They, they, sin is conceived in their hearts and it's, it's imputed to us throughout every generation. Like we're born with sin. It doesn't matter what we've done. We're born sinners. And, and, and because of that, we are, because we're born sinners, we are born running from God. The first thing that they do is that they hide themselves. So they've been enjoying this fellowship with God, walking with Him in the cool of the day around the garden, and all of a sudden, that becomes a problem to be in God's presence. Church, that's what sin does in your life. Sin haunts you and it convinces you that, rightly so, that you cannot and should not live in God's presence. That you cannot be in His presence as you are. But what Jesus Christ comes and He does is He comes and He covers our sins. And He clothes us with righteousness so that we can live in His presence again if we will run to Him. And there's this beautiful picture in Genesis chapter uh, 3 or 4 where, where, uh, where God clothes them. The first thing that He does is He clothes His naked children because all of a sudden their nakedness is shameful. Their exposure is shameful. Just like our sinfulness is shameful. The first thing that He does, the first work that He does is He sacrifices an animal right there in the garden. An innocent animal. It's a picture of what the Gospel is. To clothe them so that we can be well-pleasing children to God. That's the first thing that Jesus does. And the promise for us is this, is that if we will hide ourselves in Jesus Christ, not our own efforts, not our own righteousness, not anything that we can do, if we will live by faith alone, reckless abandonment, trust in Jesus Christ, then we will have protection from the troubles of this world. Colossians 3.3 says this, For you have died and your life is now hidden in God with Christ. 3.4 says this, And when Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear with Him in glory. And so the promise for us is this, is that when we hide ourselves in Christ, meaning we have faith in Him, not just lip service, not just, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but faith in Him like, if you pull Jesus out from under me, I've got nothing. That kind of faith. If we will live that way, then we are hidden in Him. Secure. He's a fortress for us. And then when He appears, He comes back to reclaim the saints, both living and dead. Then we will appear with Him in glory. And will not be consumed because judgment church will be a good thing for us. When Jesus returns for Christians, judgment is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. Because finally we get to this place where that, that echo that we see in the Scriptures that we're well-pleasing sons and daughters is a reality for us. We don't have to doubt it anymore. We don't have to spend our days wondering if God really loves us. And as we talk about often at New City, that's the hardest thing to do is to actually believe that we're well-pleasing children to God through faith, isn't it? It's the most difficult thing to believe because everything around you in this world tells you that if you can't do it yourself, it doesn't belong to you. If you can't earn it yourself, it's not yours. Because you've got a past, you're not spotless. But by faith in Jesus, we are. If we will run to Him, we are safe. But the warning is the flip side of this promise. If you do not run to Jesus, you are not safe. Let me say it again. If we do not hide ourselves in God, we are not safe. That might be some of you in here this morning. That, that you've kind of... You've been tiptoeing around the faith. 
showing up for church services, talking to people a little bit. But if you're not hidden in Jesus Christ, you're not safe from the troubles of this world. And, and the, the beauty is that you can change that today. Maybe God is welling something up inside of you. You're interested in Jesus. You want to cast your chips in and put them all on Jesus. Just came back from Vegas. The second thing that we see in Psalm 91 is this. We have complete protection in this life. So how does Jesus hide us when we run to Him, you might ask? Let's read. Listen, listen for all of the imagery and metaphor that you see in Psalm 91. It's about every possible situation that you can think of. He says this, For He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, like a bird that's caught in a, in a trap, or deadly pestilence, disease that sweeps through a nation that cannot be controlled. He'll deliver you from those things, He says. He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. So it's this picture of a, of a, of a mama bird and a baby bird. And the mama bird protecting the baby bird. This intimacy, this tenderness that you see that He'll cover us with. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. It's a defense against the schemes of the enemy. Whatever that may look like for you in this season of your life. And you will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by the day. The enemy's assaults and attacks on your life. And what are those church? The accuser of the brethren. The accusations that come from the devil. The father of lies. The lies that we believe. Those are a few... A couple of the, the ways that the enemy seeks to attack your life. It may not be physical. It may be very spiritual for you. Nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. And then he says this, a thousand may fall at your side, child of God, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. These verses paint so many types of pictures of God's protection for us in so many different ways. I mean, almost in all of these, they're, 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 because sometimes we sin and, and we receive the consequences of that sin, right? And, and rightly so. But other times, things happen in our lives and assaults against, against our flesh happen from the enemy that we cannot control both physically and spiritually. And he's saying, listen, God has you covered no matter what it is. So I don't know what it is for you right now. Maybe you are tormented by the devil and you are just living in this constant state of anxiety and depression and fear maybe. So you can hide yourself in Jesus. You can hide yourself in Him. Or it may be very physical for you. There may be some things that are happening in your life that are really terrifying for you right now. That, that every message around you may be screaming, you're insecure, you're not secure. You cannot, be, you cannot trust what's happening in your life right now. You, you, God doesn't have you right now. But what we see is that we are helpless people in need of a shepherd. In fact, that's why Jesus calls us sheep, right? The Scripture said that He looked out and He saw uh, the, the crowds and, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so He had compassion on them. And we never outgrow our need to be shepherded by God. We've talked about this often in New City, how Somehow there's this mantra that if you grow as a Christian, somehow you need less grace. Somehow you need less mercy if you grow as a Christian. But what I found is, what the Apostle Paul found, is that at the beginning of when you come to faith, you think you need a little bit of mercy, a little bit of grace. 
Um, and then at the end of your life, you realize you needed a lot more than you originally anticipated, right? That's why the Apostle Paul says this. At the beginning of his ministry, he says, you know, I'm the, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the 13th man, okay? Like, I'm, I'm at least the 13th man. Like, I'm, I'm pretty low on that. The end of his life, when he writes 2 Timothy, what's he say? He says, I'm the chief of sinners. That's the trajectory for us of spiritual maturity. And as we grow up in God, as we grow up in Christ, as we hide ourselves in Him, we see that God is so willing to protect us in more ways than we ever realized that we needed to be protected. Amen? He does that for us. This psalm doesn't say that you don't have to face trouble. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 16.33, in this world, you're going to have trouble. So if you're not facing trouble, it's coming. <laughs> Good news, right? In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So this psalm doesn't, it doesn't say that you're not going to face these things, but it says you don't have to be consumed by fear of the trouble that you're going to face. Because we can hide ourselves in Him. And even though, as, as, the, as the psalm goes on to say, ten, you, you know, a thousand uh, uh, at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, in other words, it might smell like death all around you, destruction all around you, spiritually and physically. You might be going through one of those seasons in life right now. Because you don't have to fear because that's not the most true thing about your story. That, that, that destruction, that temptation, that struggle, that trial that you're in right now is not the most true thing about you. The most true thing about you is that you're protected. That you're covered. That you're hidden. That you're righteous. That you belong to God through Jesus Christ. That's the most true thing about a Christian in this room. I love how C.H. Spurgeon talks about trial and suffering. He says this, Perhaps at this very moment, down in some cabin or amidst the noise and tumult and the raging of the ocean, when many are alarmed, there are Christians with calm faces, patiently waiting their Father's will. Whether it shall be to reach the port of heaven, or go to be with God, or to be spared to come again to land into the midst of life's trials and struggles once more. And here's why they have a calm face, he says. They feel that they are well cared for. For they know that the storm has a bit in its mouth. And that God holds it. And nothing can hurt them. Nothing can happen to them but what God permits. The storm has a bit in its mouth. The storm that you're in right now, does it seem like it has a bit in its mouth? Because it does. Remember the story of Job in Job chapter 1? He's this righteous guy that was, that was living his life for God and, and Satan comes and he has to ask permission to tempt Job. To destroy everything around Job so that he can show his faithfulness to God. Or about the time that Simon Peter you know, thought he had it all together and... Uh, and Jesus looks at him and he says, Simon, Satan has demanded to, to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. You see, the storm has a bit in its mouth. I don't know what the storm is for you right now. I don't know what the storm is in this season, the trial is, the struggle, the suffering. But it is the most real way that you can identify to God with God right now. It is the invitation to a deeper life of abiding with Jesus. Do you see it that way today? Or do you see it as a problem? You wish your life was a different set of circumstances than the one that it is. Because failure to live presently where God has you right now means that we miss out on all the blessing and all the protection and all the comfort and all the promises that God has for us to secure us in Himself right now. 
Romans 8.28, familiar verse for us here at New City. All things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Not some things, not many things, not occasional things, but all things work together for our good if we belong to Jesus. That means that there's nothing that the enemy can take from you that God didn't let him for your good. That there's no situation that the enemy can put you in that God cannot redeem and use for your ultimate good. It's like Joseph gets to the end of his life, right? In Genesis 50. We're going to sing a song about this after the sermon. Gets to the end of his life and he's able to look at his brothers and say, hey look, what you meant for evil, and you did mean it for evil, You're the one that sold me into slavery in Egypt. What you meant for evil because you were so ashamed of me, you're so disappointed in me, you're so jealous of me, what you meant for evil, God used for good. And I don't think Joseph had any bitterness in his heart toward his brothers because he clung so strongly to the promises of God. Let's keep moving here. Psalm uh, chapter 91, verses 11 and 12. This This is actually the verses that Satan uses to tempt Jesus. Here's what I see in this, that we have supernatural protection. Listen, for He will command His angels, verse 11, concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Then we'll just read verse 13 for fun right here too. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Isn't it interesting that Satan didn't go ahead and quote that as well? Isn't that interesting? Hey, oh, by the way, you're going you're gonna to trample me. No, he, he, he cuts and pastes what, what's convenient for him, right? Don't think he doesn't do the same thing in your life. He'll cut and paste all day long. That Thomas Jefferson Bible, right? Take out all the miracles and just he'll put it out there for you. Just to, just to take one truth at the expense of all the other ones. But we take the whole counsel of God here. And what we see from this is that not only does God care for us through His Spirit and through the help that we get through His Spirit, but also through spiritual beings that are created for one purpose, as Hebrews 1 says. One purpose. Here's what they are. are not, uh, Hebrews 1.14 are not all ministering spirits or angels okay, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to, to inherit salvation. What is the purpose of angels in this world? It's to serve and to help you be carried on to completion. You remember that scene in, I think it's 1 Kings, where Elisha is really flabbergasted of the situation God's got him in. And God opens his eyes to see all of the spiritual protection, the horses and the chariots, and all of the help that he has in this unseen world. Do you think God doesn't do the same thing for you? We, we have no idea how much trouble we're in without God's help. He is so eager to help us. Now, I do want to correct a little bit of bad theology that we've inherited from Hollywood here. Uh, nowhere in the Scriptures do the, does the Bible say that, uh, that when we die, we become angels. Okay, I, I'm real serious. That's, these beings were created to help carry us on to completion. They are instruments of God to help us inherit salvation according to the book of Hebrews. They, they help real image bearers. And their help, guys, is, is unknown and mysterious. This is the closest thing you'll get in the Scriptures to the idea of a guardian angel. In the Scriptures, we don't see that that is... Uh, we don't see that language anywhere, but maybe, who knows? All we know is we have tons of help from the unseen world 
to fight this battle as, as Paul says in Ephesians 6 that's not of flesh and blood. You may think your boss is your biggest enemy. You may, you may think that, that your family is really a mess and they're out to get you. You have no idea. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the powers and the principalities of this present darkness, as Ephesians 6 says. And because of that, God has equipped us with supernatural care. We have more help than we ever could imagine to get us through this life and to help us inherit salvation. Because it is so hard to follow Jesus. It is so hard to inherit salvation. It is so hard to believe and to live a faithful life that God has helped us in every way imaginable. The fourth thing we see is this, as we close out Psalm 91, is that we have tender deliverance from the schemes of the enemy. Go ahead and reread that verse that the enemy left out with Jesus. You will tread on the lion and the adder. It's another word for cobra, snake. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. These are all images of the enemy, right? 1 Peter 3, I think, the, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He says, you actually have power over him because of the promise of God that the descendant of Adam and Eve would crush the head of the enemy. So we cling to that. He says, you've got that promise here. Cling to that. Because, and then this goes, it shifts perspectives here in verses uh, 15 and 16. This, this goes from, from us looking at God and clinging to those promises to God speaking to us. And he says this, because He holds fast to me in love, not in duty, not in works, but He holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him. I will protect Him because He knows my name. When He calls to me, I'll answer Him. I'll be with Him in trouble. I'll rescue Him and honor Him. With long life, I will satisfy Him and show Him my salvation. Now church, the Scriptures teach us in 1 John that we love because He first loved us. And so out of that response, we love God. We cling to Him. And when we cling to Him, He says that our lives will ultimately be satisfied through the salvation that He promises to give us. And in this life, we will suffer many trials and many tribulations and some of us will lose our lives to things that we never imagined. That's just the reality of living in this world. But the promise of God is this. Is that the enemy can't take from you the most important thing and that's your soul. He'll never have power over that through faith in Christ because Jesus will deliver us. And so, that, that cancer that comes upon your life, maybe it already has, maybe it will, that sickness, that disease, that irreparable relationship that is just driving you insane, that can't take from you the most important thing in your life, which is your soul. Because that's secure in Jesus. Because our enemy is ultimately crushed by Jesus and victorious over Him. When you call, He will answer. He may not always answer the way that you think that He will, but He will answer. My friend Bob in his uh, is in his late forties, and to close with a story, he he um, I shared this a couple years ago. It's just a remarkable story, but uh, you know he's in his forties and he's got a couple of uh, of boys, and one of them was in college, and he was uh, how we say it, sowing his wild oats. Is that how we say it? You get the picture. Yeah, yeah. He was in he was in trouble. He was about twenty, and you know, as an underage kid, he'd become an alcoholic in college, and 
And his father had always told him, Bob had always told him, listen, son, you can't, you know, there, there's never a situation that you can get yourself into um, that I'm not going to be there for you. And Bob was a pretty new Christian himself, but he just understood that protection and that availability that God has for him, and he wanted to extend that to his son. And so he got into this place where uh, he was, his son uh, was in a really bad spot, and, and, he, and he remembered that promise that, that if I call dad, he'll answer. And so he's with his friends, and they had way too much to drink, and were in a very dangerous place, like life-threatening place. And he says, he says something that none of them expected. He says, hey, can you call my dad? And they're all thinking, dude, this is a terrible idea. Do not call your dad. We're all going to get busted. We're going to be in really big trouble. And so the friends, against their own will, call his dad. And dad drives an hour away to pick him up and drives him back home. And, and when they get home, uh, the overconsumption of alcohol does its thing to his son's body. And his father just sits there with him all night long, wiping his face caring for him. This is a college athlete. I mean, he's like a man, right? And his dad just sits there with him all night and he wakes up the next morning and uh, dad had been awake all night, but wakes up the next morning and he's so ashamed. He's so embarrassed about what he'd gotten himself into. And uh, his, son, his son says, uh, or his dad says this, I want you to remember, he said, you've learned a valuable lesson. Here's what he said. You've learned a valuable lesson last night. <laughs> and here's what I would have said. Never drink again. <laughs> But he didn't say that. He said, you can't outsend my love. Call me and I'm going to answer you because this is what God does for us. Church, we even have protection against the sin that we get ourselves into. That's the promise of God. So my question for you as we turn uh, to, the, to the table and, and remember what Jesus has done for us is, will you cling to those promises through faith? Or will we continue in this survivalistic self-protection mode? Let's pray together. Our Father, we, uh, we thank You that, um, that You've come to rescue us as we hide ourselves in You. Lord, I pray for some of those in this room today that uh, they're, just, they're just not safe, God. They've not hidden themselves in You. They've not trusted in Jesus. They're, they're waiting for something, and I don't know what it is. And maybe You do. But I pray that You would work in their hearts and in their lives this morning to cling to You. For, the, for those in this room that are following You, God, I ask that You would solidify their confidence in You. That they could cling to the promises a little more deeply. That they're loved and protected a little more than they ever could imagine. And God, we thank You for Jesus. He's the reason any of us have hope in this room. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.